We're going to start today in Psalm 44, 23 through 24. We're in a series uh, about difficult questions. We talked last week uh, about one of the hard ones. Uh, Today, this may be the most difficult of all. Why would a loving God allow suffering? Uh, The actor Stephen Fry uh, was on a British talk show a few years ago, and on this particular show, which I've never actually seen, um, they always ask everybody one question that's the same, and that is, if you stood before God right now, what would you say to him? They don't word it in exactly that way, but that's the basic question. And Stephen Fry is an outspoken atheist. He makes no secret about that. And so when he was asked the question, here was his, here's the direct quote of what he said. He said, I'd say, bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. For those of us who know God and and have experienced his love and we know what he's done for us, we just kind of recoil when we hear that kind of language and we just, there's, there's an emotional response we want to give. And yet at the same time, many of us, if not most of us, would have to say, well, I've asked the same kinds of questions, maybe just not in, in the same way, maybe not using an inflammatory language. But for instance, five years ago, five years ago this coming December is the anniversary of uh, the Newtown shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary. And that was just awful when it happened. And I remember a, a friend of mine, a, a Christian that I knew very well, said, I've got to be honest with you, I, I'm having a hard time with this. I don't understand why God didn't prevent this. All he had to do was just send one policeman, just make sure one policeman was in the area. One cop could have taken this guy out and everything would have been fine. Some of us have a more personal version of this question. By the way, this question is called the problem of pain by theologians, by philosophers, and it's sort of a logical quandary for theologians. It goes like this. If God is good, if God is loving, If God is all-powerful, which Scripture says he's all three, then the world should be perfect because the world contains suffering, contains evil, contains pain and death. Therefore, God is not good or he's not loving or he's not powerful or he's not there. So what does the Scripture say about this? We're going to talk about that in a moment, but for some of us, it's not so theoretical and lofty. As, as that, as this logical issue. For us, it's more of a personal issue. There are people in this room, if people stood up and, and shared what was going on in their lives and what they'd suffered, I guarantee you there are, there are some things that people in this room have experienced that the rest of us would be shocked to find out, that we'd think, boy, I, I don't know how you survived that. There are awful things that happen, and sometimes they come in waves. Have you noticed this? Something bad will happen to someone, they'll lose their job, and then just when they're starting to recover financially, they'll get sick and have to go to the hospital. They have no insurance because they've lost their job. And meanwhile, while they're in the hospital, a relative dies. And then they get out of the hospital to go to the relative's funeral. And while they're there, their, husband, their, their son comes to them and says, hey, my wife left me and has taken your grandchildren. You may never see them again. I mean, just a, a wave of evil that just besets one person. And meanwhile, they look across the street and their neighbor who doesn't go to church and doesn't seem to believe in much of anything is living a carefree, seemingly blissful life. And they say, Lord, what what is going on? 
And some of you could testify something like that. I, I posted on Facebook this week what I was preaching on, and a friend of mine uh, read what it said and commented. Now, this friend um, buried her husband last year. They had served in the Navy together, got married. They had this beautiful girl. She's 12 years old, um, and he contracted ALS a few years ago. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, is maybe the worst disease there is. I can't think of any more cruel way to die. And she had to watch him slowly die and, and wait on him and take care of him. She did an excellent job, but it's awful. And on my Facebook page, she wrote, that's a hard question. That's something we have to deal with. Someone else, another friend who I don't know as well, wrote, there is no answer to that question. I hope I prove him wrong this morning. So what does the Bible say? Because the Bible actually asks this very same question. Psalm 44, where we're starting today, fortunately not where we're ending, this is a, a word from the psalmist. Psalm 44, verse 23 says, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? I want to ask you something you think it's remarkable that that's in the Bible? I mean, God actually put that in his word. The honest prayer of one of his people saying, Lord, I don't understand. And what that says to us is that when we question, when we ask questions like this, God is not offended. God is not shocked. God is not upset. He expects us to ask these questions. He expects that life is going to be confusing for us, and he is not angry when we question. But are there answers? Let me just say from the beginning, I, I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions in this 30-minute sermon. I'm certainly not going to be able, if I had all the time in the world, to tell you why a certain thing happened in your life or didn't happen if you wanted it to. I, if, if you look at your worship guide on that, and the little note that I write you every week with a prayer emphasis, there's a couple of books I recommend if you want to dive deeper into this topic. They've been very helpful to me. But what I want to do for the rest of our time together is I want to, I want to counteract from Scripture three false ideas that people believe when they talk about pain and God and the world. Three false ideas. Number one, false idea number one, evil is God's fault. God is responsible for evil. That is the idea we need to counteract. So basically, if we read tomorrow that a family has died in a car crash, do we believe that God reached down with his invisible finger and nudged their minivan over the median so that it slammed into the oncoming truck? If I find out this week that I have cancer, does that mean that God placed cancer cells in my body or handcrafted tumors in some particular part of my anatomy? Is that what we believe? Some people do including some Christians. What does the Bible say? The Bible is clear that sometimes some pain is a result of our evil. Some pain is God's discipline in our lives. But, but here's the thing. If you look at all those stories of God disciplining his children, every time he disciplined one of his children, they knew they were being disciplined. You see? It's not as though they were sitting there saying, well, Lord, why has this happened to me? They knew. Either, either what they were experiencing was a direct result, a direct consequence of some bad choice they'd made, or God sent a prophet or some other messenger to say, here's why this is happening to you. And it only makes sense. Why would God punish us and not tell us why? It, it would make no sense. So most 
evil is not the direct result of God's hand. And let me show you why I know that. We look at the life of Jesus, who Scripture tells us clearly is God in human flesh, God in a human body. Jesus was born into this world as a human being, but he was fully God. And watch the way he reacted in Scripture, in the four Gospels. Watch the way he reacted whenever he saw human pain. Did he look at it the way I look at it when someone slaps a mosquito? I don't feel any pity for that mosquito. I'm kind of glad. Oh, good. He's not going to get me. Did Jesus respond that way to human pain? It's not my problem. No. Did Jesus say, oh, look at this awful world that I've made. Oh, I messed up. I should redo things. No. Jesus instead attacked pain wherever he saw it. He addressed it. You never once see anywhere in Scripture Jesus see a legitimate human need and walk away. Whatever power he had to accomplish change, he did it. And one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible is John chapter 11. And in studying for this message, I thought about how much I love John 11, and I'm going to have to preach on it soon, so y'all just be ready for that. But John 11 is the story of Jesus going to Bethany where his friend, his very good friend Lazarus, has just passed away. And Jesus gets there, and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, are devastated. And all the people of that village, which is just two miles from Jerusalem, they're, they're all weeping and mourning. The Jews were not as reserved as we are in the West today. They, they just cut loose with their grief. They would mourn. They would weep. They would tear their garments. And Jesus is walking in the midst of them. And notice how he responds. I want to read you just three verses, John eleven thirty three through 35. Jesus is standing in front of Lazarus's sister, and it says, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, many of us recognize those last two words, Jesus wept, as verse 35, John eleven thirty-five, 35, the shortest verse of the Bible. And maybe when you were a child, if you were raised in church, your Sunday school teacher challenged you to learn a verse of Scripture by heart, and you were like, John eleven thirty five, 35, I got it. Jesus wept. Easiest verse in the whole Bible. But how many of us stopped to ask the question, why was Jesus weeping? What was he crying about? This is one of only two times in the Bible that we see him shed tears. I think it's remarkable that God in human flesh, when he was confronted with the death of someone he loved, responded in exactly the same way you and I respond when we lose someone we love. He wept. But even more remarkable is the question, why would Jesus weep when he knows in 30 seconds I'm going to say Lazarus come forth and he's going to come stumbling out of that tomb, wrapped, in, wrapped tightly like a mummy in his grave clothes, but alive, I'm going to see him again. Why is Jesus crying? I think the, the clue for us it comes in the sentence before that when it says he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Okay, it's not the sentence right before it, but you know what I'm saying. He was angry. Why was Jesus angry? Now, by the way, your Bible may not say that. This is, uh, this is from the English Standard Bible, which is, I believe, the most literal word-for-word Greek-to-English translation we have. And I chose it because in the Greek, the word that's used, that John used there, actually means angry. Now, most Bible, most English translations will sort of make it sound more polite by saying Jesus was provoked or Jesus was troubled, but it literally means he was angry. This is a Greek word that writers back then would use when a bull or a horse snorted because it was angry. 
So this is a violent, this is a violent emotion Jesus is feeling. Why would Jesus be angry? I think the, the answer is clear. This isn't the world I made. Genesis 1 tells us God made the heavens and the earth. He looked at it and he said, it is good. It is good. And there was no death and there was no pain in that world. John in Genesis 3 says that we sinned and pain came into the world and sin came into the world and death came into the world. And Jesus is confronting it with human eyes and he says, this is not right. He's angry. And what this tells us, what this tells us is that when God looks upon human evil, when he looks upon the evil that we suffer and the pain and the suffering of this world, he hates it just as much as we do. It makes him angry. So far from saying God is evil is God's fault, evil is something that God hates and wants to change. And he has a plan for that, and we'll talk about that at the end. So that's the first false idea. Evil is not God's fault. Second false idea, I am qualified to judge what it is reasonable for God to allow. And this part is not going to be easy for some of us to hear. Because right now, we're judging God. Right now, we're angry at God for what's going on in our lives. And as I said earlier, God understands that. He's not going to strike you with lightning. But it's not true. We're really not qualified to judge. You see, the truth is, sometimes God does intervene. You know, I've, I've just gone through this big production to say that evil is not God's fault. He doesn't directly cause evil, and so we can't blame him. And yet, at the same time, the Bible says sometimes... He intervenes. He steps in and stops something bad from happening. Sometimes he intervenes to reverse something bad that has happened and turn it into something good. And whenever that happens, we call that a miracle. And some of you could stand up and testify and say, yeah, the doctor couldn't figure out why there was no cancer when they said there was cancer. And the doctor couldn't figure out why um, I was suddenly able to walk again. And when two weeks ago, I couldn't even get out of my bed or Man, my, my child come, came home a week after he said, I never want to see you again. He came home and everything's great. It's a miracle. We could testify, many of us, but why doesn't that always happen? How come whenever I ask him for something and I know it's good, like when some of you are sick and I say, Lord, heal them. And I pray diligently, and many of you do too, but it doesn't always happen. And I've buried people since I've been here, the year and a half I've been here at the church, I've buried people who I desperately prayed for their healing, and it didn't happen. I've had couples who I dearly loved who I thought, you know, you're, you're struggling now, but you can hold it together. I know you can make it. I'm praying for you to reconcile. And then they divorce anyway. I prayed a few weeks ago, like many of you, that the hurricane would not hit, that the, for, the forecasters would be completely wrong, that the, the storm would just dissipate and we'd get a little bit of rain and that'd be all. It didn't work out that way. Why not? I, I, that's something I can't answer. I, I don't know why God does what he does and I don't know why he doesn't just say, okay, Jeff, you got a good idea there. I think I'll go with it. Except to say this. When I study Scripture, what I've concluded is, and this is not my own conclusion. I've, I, I got this from others who studied the Scripture. They worded it better for me, but here's, here's what it says. Every time I pray, God says, I will answer that prayer in exactly the way you would want me to if you knew what I know. Let me say that again. God answers every prayer that His children pray in exactly the way we would want Him to if we knew what he 
knows. I'll give you an example from Scripture. The story of Joseph, Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Joseph is the favorite son of his dad. His brothers are jealous, so they sell him into slavery. I can't think of much that could be worse than your own brothers selling you into slavery. Joseph prayed when he was down in that pit his brothers had thrown him into, Lord, rescue me. God didn't. Later, when he was being in that wagon train on his way to Egypt, sold to Midianite traders, he prayed, Lord, free me. God didn't. Later on, when his slave master threw him in jail for a crime Joseph didn't commit, he must have prayed, Lord, free me. God didn't. God didn't answer any of those prayers the way Joseph wanted him to. And yet the story ends with Joseph somehow being released from prison, gaining the confidence of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, somehow becoming his de facto prime minister, and through his own skill that God placed in him, saving thousands and thousands of people from death by starvation in the midst of a famine, including the lives of his own family, with whom he reconciled. And at the end of the story, they're all living together in Egypt, happy and well-fed. And then Jacob, Joseph's father, dies after this long and fruitful life, old and full of years. He passes away. And Joseph's brothers, this is is Genesis chapter 50, they come to him and they say, okay, we know you're going to kill us now, right? Because, you know, we saw Godfather Part 2, and we're, we're Fredo Corleone, right? I mean, our parents are dead, and now that they're dead, you're going to take us out. And Joseph says, I can't believe this. You don't believe that I've forgiven you, but I really have forgiven you. And then he says something wonderful. And this is a direct quote from Scripture, Genesis 50, 20. He says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You meant to hurt me. God didn't do that. God didn't sell me into slavery. God didn't throw me in jail for a crime I didn't commit. But God took what others meant for evil, and he said, you can't defeat my plan, evil. I'm going to take this guy, and I'm going to use him anyway. And he turned that evil deed into good. Because think about it, guys. If I hadn't been sold into slavery, I couldn't have saved thousands of lives. I would have stayed home with you, and when the famine hit, we'd all have starved to death. (laughs) So look what God did. Tim Keller tells a story about a friend of his who was, uh, when he was a younger man, was was a drug dealer and was entirely self-centered. He had relationships with people, but they were all for his own benefit. He used people. He didn't love people. One day he was in the midst of a deal and someone pulled a gun and shot him in the face. He almost died. He lost most of his sight. It it took extensive surgery, painful recuperation to even resume regular life. And yet in the midst of his recovery, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ and was transformed. And now he has very little sight. Uh, His life has changed. He certainly has less money than when he was dealing drugs. You won't be surprised to find out. And yet he's full of joy. He's full of peace. He's got friendships all around him. He's got people he loves. And he says, none of this would be possible if I hadn't been shot in the face. I never would have turned to Christ if not for that. And he said, it was a terrible price to pay, but it was worth it. It was worth it. Someday, I don't know how, someday the worst things we've ever experienced, we're going to look back on them through the eyes of Christ and say, it was worth it. I don't know how now, but someday we'll see and we'll know. You know, those of you who are parents or if you've ever raised kids, you know what it's like to allow 
strategically allow pain into your child's life, okay? And I'm not talking about spankings, that's part of it, but I'm talking about the pain you don't want them to experience, but you know you have to. Like, for instance, when they're babies. I remember our firstborn, who's now 20, you know, we, we put her through the, that round of immunizations, did the same with Will. It was harder with our first because we hadn't done it before. And I remember this one, uh, this one doctor's appointment I missed, and the doctor hit her with two or three different shots, and her umbilical cord hadn't fallen off, so we had to burn that off too. And Carrie got home, and she was just a wreck, and she's like, don't ever do that to me again. You've got to go with me to these things. Because when you're the parent and you take the child into this room where this evil doctor with this long needle comes at your child, and then he says, okay, she's wiggling too much, hold her still for me. And your child is looking up at you and saying, really, you're the only person in the world I trust and you're doing this to me? Actually, my daughter hated me back then, so she, did, she wasn't saying that. She was like, okay, this is typical. But, um, but as a parent, that's so hard. Because you can't explain to your child, this is for your good. This is because I love you. Then they grow up. You have to take them to school. They cry and cry that you're leaving them in school. Then they get homework. Mom, Dad, why can't I be a kid? Why can't I just, why can't I just come home and play? And, and you want that too. You love for your child to have fun. But no, they need to do this homework. You don't do it for them. They get into trouble at school. And please, mom and dad, please tell me, you don't run, you're not one of those parents who runs up to school and balls out the principal because your child got into trouble. Tell me, please tell me that you let them experience the consequences of their actions, right? Because otherwise you're raising a monster. But we do this as parents, not because we enjoy it. We don't go home and slap our spouse a high five and say, boy, that sure was fun when he had to go to detention. Wasn't that awesome? Wasn't that great when that girl broke up with him? Wasn't that wonderful? Well, maybe sometimes, but <laughs> we don't take joy in the pain our children go through, but we, we don't shield them from it either when we know it's redemptive, when we know it's needed. And someday, someday God's going to say, do you remember that time? And you prayed and you prayed and you prayed, and, and I couldn't explain to you why. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't give you what you wanted but I was doing exactly what you would have wanted me to if you knew what I knew. We're not qualified to judge. I know that's hard. Are we, are we free to get angry? Are we free to feel hurt? Absolutely, but we should recognize there are things we don't know. And then false idea number three. And this is the, this is the worst one because this is the one that comes from within the church. It's the idea, false idea number three, is the idea that the Bible teaches that good people are exempt from suffering. The Bible teaches that good people are exempt from suffering. No, it does not. You know, here's what I say. The prosperity gospel that is so popular today is true in this sense. If you preach prosperity, you become very prosperous. If you write books about how God wants you to be blessed, you're going to get rich. And that's how the prosperity gospel works. It doesn't so much work for the people that buy the books and listen to the sermons. What does Scripture actually say? They often use Jeremiah 29.11 to prove this. Jeremiah 29.11 is a favorite Scripture of many of us in this room. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. And I know many of us would say, yeah, I love that scripture. I write that in cards of encouragement to people, or I, 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 I write that on a note to a kid who's graduating. God has a great plan for your life. But please, the next time you're going to use Jeremiah 29, 11, take a moment and actually read Jeremiah 29 and see what this is actually about. Let me just sum it up for you. The Jews have been devastated. They've lost their homeland. This happened a lot in the ancient world. Babylonians have invaded. They've carried away all the Israelites to their own country. And this happened over and over again to other people. And whenever it happened to a people group, when a smaller people group was basically uh, exiled by a bigger people group, they basically disappeared from history. You know, the Hittites just kind of married in with whoever captured them and there were no more Hittites and so forth. And that's what it looks like it's going to happen to the Jews. So Jeremiah, one of the few Israelites who didn't get captured, writes a letter to the Jews in exile and says, listen, I know there are prophets in Babylon who are saying, don't worry about it. God is going to release you. Don't even unpack your bags. You're just going to be here a little while and you're going to go home. He says, don't listen to them. They're wrong. You're never going to see Israel again. You're there for the rest of your lives. And it's because of your sin. You did this to yourself. So plant trees, build houses, get your kids married, have grandkids, enjoy life in Babylon because that's your home right now. But, he says, the good news is this is not the end of the Jewish people. In 70 years, I'm going to bring you back home. Now, none of you will be alive anymore. But I'm going to bring your people back home for I know the plans I have for you. That's the context of that verse. He's saying, I still have a plan for the Jewish people. And lo and behold, there's still a Jewish people today in spite of the best efforts of a whole lot of evil folks trying to wipe them out. So Jeremiah 29, 11 is true. It's just not true in the sense that, well, God wants me to have a nice car and a perfect spouse and complete health. That's not what it means give you another one, and I'll be shorter this time. Isaiah 53, 5, out of a, a fantastic chapter of the Bible that, pre, uh, that, that foretells the death of Jesus on the cross, and it says, he was bruised for our transgression and crushed for our, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's a powerful passage foretelling what Jesus is going to do for us on the cross and what it means for us. And yet some will look at that last phrase, by his wounds we are healed, and they'll say, okay, that means the next time I'm sick, I can just pray, Lord, by your wounds I'm healed and I'll be healed. But that's not what it means. Every other scripture that talks about the meaning of the cross, none of them mention physical healing at all. They're all about how Christ's death for us reconciles us to God and, for, and leads to the forgiveness of our sins and gives us new life. But it doesn't mean that we're exempt from illness. I mean, for goodness sakes, look at the life of the Apostle Paul. There's never been a more faithful follower of God. And yet, look at what it cost him to follow Jesus. He was a rising star in Judaism, had everything he wanted, and then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was changed forever. Suddenly, he's a hunted man for the rest of his life. He's never going to sleep well. Um, he, he's beaten. He's nearly stoned to death. He's shipwrecked. He's jailed. He's almost killed on numerous occasions. Plus, his own people consider him a traitor and ultimately sell him out to the Romans who behead him. 
all because he followed Jesus. Did this happen because he wasn't faithful enough? If he, did he not believe enough in God's promises? No. And Paul would have, would have told you. In fact, he wrote a letter, the letter to the Philippians, from prison in which he said, boy, this is the best thing I've ever done. This is the best decision I ever made. Philippians chapter 3, he says, all the things I used to have, I consider them like a big pile of dung. He literally uses that term, a big pile of dung compared to what I now have in Jesus. This is the, this is the height of my life, and I can't wait to see him face to face. So yes, Paul would have said, following Jesus is a good decision. It makes your life better than it used to be, but sometimes not so much in short-term ways. And if you're a faithful, diligent follower of Christ, you can probably think of some ways your life would be easier, more convenient, and you'd have more of the stuff you want if you weren't quite so committed. And if you're, on the other hand, if you're one of those Christians who's like, yeah, I know I should be more committed to Christ, you can probably think of several reasons why not to, and they all have to do with, well, I'll have to give more of my money, I'll have to give more of my time, yeah, I'll have to think less of myself. It's, it's just easier not following Him. It's just the truth. So the fact that we're exempt from suffering is not biblical. Now let me ask you something. I know I've been talking a long time, but aren't you glad I'm not done yet? Aren't you glad I'm not stopping right now? Please tell me you're glad that I'm not stopping. Okay, so here's the good news. What is God's answer to the problem of pain? What is God's answer? Because he does have an answer. It's an ult- he has a short-term answer and an ultimate answer. And the short-term answer, believe it or not, is us. We are God's answer. The church, not First Baptist Church Conroe, but the church, capital C, we are. The people of God, red, yellow, black, and white, we are the body of Christ on earth. As we said earlier, what did Jesus do when he was here physically on earth? He constantly addressed the problem of pain. Every time he saw someone hurting, he helped them. Every time he saw someone sick, he healed them. Jesus broke up so many funerals. I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing worse for a funeral director than a guy who raises the dead, right? I mean, I guarantee you, those people never paid, never paid the funeral home. You know, they got up and they were done. Jesus was constantly changing lives and addressing hurt. And then he had the audacity to say this. In John 14, 12, he said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Wait a second. Jesus just said, I will do even greater things than he will do? I've never walked on water. I've never stilled a storm. I've never raised the dead. Heck, I can't even build a tool shed. What is he talking about? He's not talking about me personally. He's talking about us collectively. He's saying to his followers, all of us, someday when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit's going to come in you, and you're going to do greater things than I ever did. Why? Because he was just one man, limited to one place in one time. He could only touch the people who were there in front of him. Whereas today, we are the body of Christ worldwide, two billion people approximately, of every race, every nation. And if we're all using the gifts God gives us, Holy Spirit living inside of us, inspiring us to be able to do things that we otherwise couldn't do, if we're all using the gifts God has given us, then we're able to touch so many more lives than Jesus could in one day. That's what he's talking about. 
And the problem is we're not doing it. And that's why people have the problem of pain. Because if the world could look out and every day see the people of God being the people of God, instead of being caught up in our own selfish agendas and our own our own concerns about the world, if we were just doing our jobs as the people of God, the world would look out and say, well, yeah, obviously God cares because look at his people. And that's why when we hear something like the, the quote I started the message off with this morning, Stephen Fry and what he said about God, when we hear stuff like that, instead of getting angry, instead of feeling all self-righteous, which I realize feels really good, instead we should say, that's on me. Because if, if me and people like me were doing what we're supposed to do, no one would have that issue. If we were being the body of Christ, no one would say such things. But, thank God, we're not the ultimate answer. There is an ultimate answer. Jesus, when he was here, didn't just do miracles. He didn't, he didn't just come to heal sick people. And by the way, if he did... What good would that do? Because those sick people later died anyway. No, Jesus' ultimate answer to the problem of pain came on two days in his life. The first day was Good Friday. We all know what happened on Good Friday. Jesus was arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. And he was crucified. And a lot of people look at that and they say, that's perfect evidence that this world is irredeemably broken. Here's this innocent man. I mean, even people who aren't believers in Jesus would say, I do believe he was a very good man, an innocent man, wrongly convicted, a man who only preached peace and reconciliation, and now we kill him in such a cruel way. That's proof this world is ruined. And yet Jesus would say differently. He would say, before he ever died, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was not an unwilling victim. Jesus went to that cross of his own volition. It also says in Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy. He had joy in his heart when he laid down his life. Why? Because he knew, this is what I came to do. Just like Joseph, God took the evil that was done to him and turned it to good for the world. Jesus took all the evil in the world and turned it into good. Jesus essentially at the cross, here's what he did. He took personal responsibility for every evil act that has ever been committed. He took personal responsibility for it so that his punishment would lead to our freedom so that his death would lead to our life, so that we would have an opportunity to be forgiven and transformed and reconciled to God and experience life as it was always meant to be lived. And then the second day, the second day is Resurrection Sunday. So three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and he didn't walk out of that tomb and say, well, I beat death. See you later, guys. And he didn't even say, hey, this means you can go to heaven when you die. Good news, huh? No, that's not what it was about. That's not all that it was about. Jesus rose again to show, I have overcome the curse. The curse is now reversed. The days of pain and suffering are limited. The world started with a perfect earth in Eden. We ruined it in Genesis 3. And it ends, the end of the story is another perfect earth. Redeemed, renewed, Jesus rules. Those who have trusted in him and received his grace live alongside him in perfect 
imperishable, eternal bodies. And the resurrection was a foretaste of that. It was Jesus saying, here's a preview of coming attractions. Just like I came back and I have now a body that can't die, that's going to happen to this whole world and all who trust in me. I have to confess to you, I've never read the Lord of the Rings series. My parents bought me a set of those books when I was a teenager, and I thought, if I read those, it's going to make me a nerd, and I knew I couldn't take that, and so I never read them, but I did watch the movies. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings series. J.R.R. Tolkien was a devout Christian, And he swore, this is not allegory. Don't read anything into this. These are just stories. And yet, because he was such a devout Christian, the gospel sort of leaked into it, I think. So the story, if you haven't read it or seen the movies, it's about these little characters called hobbits. And they discover that there's this ring. It's basically the source of all evil. And it needs to be destroyed. So two of them, Frodo and Sam, take it upon themselves to march that ring to the fires of Mount Doom and throw them inside, throw it inside so that it's destroyed forever, and they destroy evil that way. Of course, it's not as simple as it sounds. It takes three long books to get there. They go through all kinds of peril, all kinds of struggles. They almost die several times. Many times it looks like evil has won. And at the end of the story, spoiler alert, they throw the ring into the fire and it is destroyed and the mountain collapses and there's this huge cataclysm and all evil is overthrown. And all right, I didn't read the book, but I got this quote from someone who did. So at the end of the story, the return of the king, here's a quote from Sam. Sam wakes up. And he sees his friend Gandalf the wizard, and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf said, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And I think... I think Tolkien may not have known what he was doing, but he was telling us the truth because someday, Scripture tells us, someday the king will return and evil will be destroyed and the world will be renewed and everything sad will come untrue. If you want to know if God has a plan, if God cares about evil and suffering, that's the way the story ends. And on that day, we're going to laugh like we've never laughed before. 